Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, in the summer of 1974, actually the end of the summer, fall of 1974, right about the same time I left home to go away to college, um, my family moved. Uh, they moved from the town, small town in New York State that had been my hometown for nine years, and they moved all the way down south to Orlando, Florida, as my dad took a new role in a church there as one of the pastors. So the following spring, fast forward to the end of my freshman year, when I got home, um, home wasn't home really to me. It was a brand new place. And so I talked my parents into allowing um, me to take my two younger brothers uh, on a road trip to go back and visit uh, our old hometown and see our friends. It was over 1,000 miles. Um, I was 18 years old. My brothers were 16 and 7. I mean, what could go wrong on a trip like that? Well, I found out. Uh, we got to New York fine, had a great uh, week-long visit there with friends. But on the way home, um, we, were dri- we were driving straight through. And about 2 in the morning, I was going through Georgia. And I got pulled over by a Georgia state trooper for doing 79 and a 55. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. That was the speed limit then. And I got pulled over, and he rightfully issued me a ticket. And then when I didn't have the cash to pay the ticket... He said, you're going to have to follow me into the sheriff's office. So I want you to picture the scene, the small town Georgia sheriff's office. Have you ever seen the show, uh, the Andy Griffith show? It it was exactly like that. Um, The sheriff was this large man sitting behind his desk. And I could literally see the jail cells uh, behind him where I was pretty sure I was going to spend the night at that point. Um, And he looked at me, looked at my two younger brothers uh, who were you know, frightened at that point, and he said, hmm, 79 and a 55. You're in a heap of trouble, son. (laughs) And then he said, whose car are you driving? I said, it's my dad's car. He said, does he know you have his car? I think he thought we were joyriding or or runaways or something, uh, just doing his job. And I said, yes, sir, he knows. And then he said, why don't we just give him a call to be sure? And he handed me the phone off his table. And he made me call my dad at 2 in the morning to tell him I had been pulled over for doing a 79 and a 55 and was in a sheriff's station. That was not a call that I wanted to make. But I made it. And so when my dad answered, uh, middle of the night, of course, he was concerned. I did my best to explain what was happening. And he said, wait, are you and your brothers okay? I said, yeah, dad, we're fine. He said, give the phone back to the sheriff. I gave the phone back to the sheriff. From then on, I could only hear the sheriff's side of the conversation. It was something like this. Yes, sir. That's right, sir. 79 and a 55. Pause. $100, sir. Pause. Yes, sir. I'll send them on their way. He hung up. He looked at me and said, son, you can go, but you better slow down. Turned out my dad had paid the ticket using his credit card on the phone. Now, I learned a couple things about authority that night. I'll get back to those in just a a little bit. But I learned a couple important things about authority. We're in a series now from the Gospel According to Mark called Following the King. We're going to be in this series uh, for most of this year, all fall and then through the spring, all the way through Easter. Uh, Last week, Pastor Jeff got us started by saying the Gospel of Mark 
is answering two primary questions. First, who is Jesus? And secondly, what does it mean to follow him? Now, Jeff also said something interesting. He said, the question is not what we make of the gospel of Mark. The question is what the gospel of Mark makes of us. And which, by the way, is why we've created those little Gospel of Mark journals, so you can more intentionally follow along, reading the text on your own. For many of you, it's, it's, it's a well-known story, but it'll be fresh again as you read through it, and you can mark in it, you can make lines, you can make circles, you can make, ask questions in the blank sheets. And my encouragement would be to try to read ahead by a week or so in the story, Uh, So you can write your own questions and make your own comments and allow the Scripture to speak to you. And then you come and hear us present, and you can fill in the gaps as we present the sermon. So I hope you'll use these these journals. Jeff said in chapter 1, Mark tells us that Jesus is the Christ. That's a formal title. It means anointed one or king. And he's the Son of God and is himself the gospel, the good news of God's salvation. We saw that Jesus came teaching and healing with great authority, which is one of the great themes of the Gospel of Mark, authority. And that his name, his fame, grew quickly in the region, as you can imagine. People began to come from all over the region of Galilee just to hear him teach and to seek him for healing of their physical ailments. In the last verse of chapter 1, Mark says, Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. So word is getting out. There's this new teacher. He's healing the sick. He healed a leprous man. He healed those with unclean spirits, and people are flocking to find him so they can hear him. And here's our text for today, Mark chapter 2. I'm going to begin in verse 1. Mark says, and when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Now, let me pause there after the first verse, give you a little background on this town called Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was located all the way at the north end of the Sea of Galilee. So see it way up there at the top? Small town right at the top of the Sea of Galilee, about 20 miles northeast of Nazareth, which was Jesus' hometown, you remember, and some 70 or 80 miles north of Jerusalem, which weighs down there toward the lower side of that map. Now, at the time, uh, scholars believed that it was a village of about 1,500 people uh, covering a region of about 13 acres. So think about that. This, our South Street campus here is on four acres. So it's the size of a small neighborhood to us, 1,500 people. That's the entire village of Capernaum. It's also the hometown of uh, Simon Peter, his brother Andrew, and the two brothers James and John, that's where they lived. That's where they had their fishing businesses, right on the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus, early in his ministry, made that his home base for ministry in that area. So that's where his, his ministry really began. And he often used Peter's home as a home base when he was in the area. Now let's go on, uh, verse 2, chapter 2. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. 
Now, some of the scribes, now, scribes were educated men who studied the law, the religious law. They copied ancient texts, made commentaries. So they were of the the highly religious uh, group connected to the Pharisees. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Okay, for many of you, that's a well-known story. There's a good chance you heard it first in Sunday school. Uh, but, and we tend to remember this story for two reasons. Uh, most obviously, we remember it because a paralyzed man is dropped through a hole torn in the roof of a home. It's, I mean, it's a very dramatic scene. You can see it play out in the movie. And if you're watching the series right now called The Chosen, they have a whole scene where they show you what this uh, situation might look like. We remember it, secondly, because a paralyzed man who cannot walk is healed by Jesus. It's a miracle story. And so we remember the story. Now, while those are two significant parts of this story, I want to say right as we begin, if that's all we know of this story, we kind of miss the point of the story. And this message is to explain why. Today I want to look at, as a, look at it as a story that revolves around four problems. Okay, four problems. The first problem I'm calling the problem of faith. The problem of faith. In the summer of 1984, uh, and I've told many stories about our time there, but I helped lead a Christian basketball team on a tour of Bolivia in South America. Spent five weeks or so crisscrossing the country, big cities, small little villages, playing basketball games of all things, but bearing witness to the gospel, encouraging local churches, and so forth. Uh, One of the cities we visited was a um, medium-sized city up in the mountains called Cochabamba. Very difficult to get, get to by road. The roads had all been washed out. They were dirt roads. Really difficult to get to. So when we got there, we learned that we were the first North American team to ever visit their city. The first team of Americans to ever visit their city. And we also learned that their local basketball team was very, very popular and had been undefeated on their home court for 20 years. And we, we realized we were kind of a big deal. We got there. We were just a ragtag bunch of guys, ex-college guys, missionaries. Uh, that try, basketball wasn't really the point of what we were doing there, but we were there to play basketball and to share the gospel. But the newspaper reporters were flocking to us. They put us on TV. It was like we were the Boston Celtics, and we really weren't. Uh, but it created quite a buzz around this city. So we, when we got to the night of the game, we're warming up a small little arena, maybe, maybe 2,000 seats on one side, then the court, and then the benches. Uh, but people were just filing in. There was kind of a buzz in the crowd, and it got completely full. And before the game started, we looked up, and my brother said, look, look, look. And people were breaking windows in the top of this arena. Just They were so desperate to get in to see that game. And the entire court was ringed with uh, military police, had white helmets on, guns strapped at their side to keep people off the playing floor. It was amazing. And by the way, we, we won that game, so 
But we see the same kind of desperation here in Mark chapter 2, verse 2. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he, Jesus, was preaching the word to them. So before we get to the problem of faith, we have the problem of the crowd. The crowd descends on this house uh, where Jesus is teaching. There's no more room for anyone. Uh, now, we don't know for sure, but there's a good chance that this story takes place actually in Peter's home. Uh, if you travel to the side of ancient Capernaum today, and Jeff and I did this a few years ago, uh, you can actually see the excavated foundations of what many archaeologists believe are the foundations of the compound where Peter would live. It's hard to see, but you can see kind of the, the stone foundations there. Uh, this is a little more modern rendering of what that compound might have looked like. Uh, not big, uh, probably not even a square footage uh, of one of our homes today. Uh, made of uh, one story tall, made of stone, uh, stone walls, and the ceilings would have been made of a combination of tree branches and, and thatch, kind of straw, maybe some tile. And this was not a large home, so 20 or 30 people was enough to make it a real crowd. Verse 3, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Here's the next problem. There's a paralytic is brought before Jesus. Now, the word points to any number of uh, physical ailments. We don't know the exact medical diagnosis. We just know the man had a very serious uh, physical problem that did not allow him to walk on his own. Uh, and then we see that the man has four friends, uh, four nameless friends who also have a problem. And their problem, I'm calling the problem of faith. They know just two things, as far as we know. They know something about Jesus, they know he teaches with authority, that's what they've heard, and they've heard that he can heal the sick. That's all they know about him. But they also know something about their friend and his condition. They know that he is both helpless and hopeless. They believe Jesus can, might be able to heal their friend to help him, but they can't get to him because the crowd is too great. They can't even get in the door. So what do they do? Do they get discouraged? Do they... Just go away and wait for a more convenient time? No. Here's what they do. Verse 4. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So they do the totally reasonable thing of climbing on top of the home of a stranger who they do not know and tearing a hole in the roof of someone's house that they don't live in. Okay, now, due to the construction of the time, it would have been easier to do that then than it would be to do to one of our homes. But still, they had to climb up an exterior ladder, get to the roof, get a grown man up there, make the hole big enough to drop the entire mat down into the room. And this is what I'm calling the problem of faith. I think every human being, no matter what their spiritual or religious background, has the problem of faith. Every human being deals with the problem of faith. And we have two questions we have to answer in our lives. The first is, in what or who do we place our ultimate faith? Every human being has faith. Even if it's faith in nothing, it's still faith. Do we put our faith in God? Do we put our faith in our wealth? Do we put our faith in politics? Do we put our faith in ourselves? And secondly, we have to answer the question, what does our faith look like? What does our faith compel us to do or to be? Clearly, these four men had already answered the first question. They had decided to put their faith in Jesus because of what they had heard about him. 
Now what we have to ask, what does their faith look like? What does their faith compel them to do? I would say it looks a little bit like love. Their faith looks like love. We see their love and their compassion for their friend. Now let me pause here. If I ask how many of you, thinking back over your spiritual journey, would say that you came to know or came to put your faith in Jesus largely because of the influence or the help or the encouragement of a friend, of at least one friend. Many of you would raise your hand. Almost all of us would raise our hands because very few of us come to faith all by ourselves. We need help. And this man, a paralyzed man, whose name we do not know, had four friends whose faith compelled them to bring him to Jesus. So we see a faith that's active and not passive. They don't wait around for a better time. They don't wait for someone else to get him to Jesus. They take action. We see a faith that looks very determined. It's determined and desperate and irrepressible. They believe Jesus can help. And their faith in Jesus compels them to do whatever it takes. Looking foolish? Sign me up. Going out of our way, climbing on top of a house, yes. Incurring the expenses of repairing that guy's house, whoever it was, sign me up. They did it all. Anything to bring their friend before Jesus. So in your journal, if you're following along, you might write, what does my faith in Jesus compel me to do? Who is there in my life that I'm compelled to try to bring to the Lord? What does my faith look like? Notice, Jesus sees their faith, verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And that leads us to the second problem of the story, the problem of sin. Problem of sin. When I was going through seminary, I was required to complete a practical experience called clinical pastoral education. I served uh, as a volunteer chaplain uh, on a wing of a large suburban hospital. Uh, there, were, there was a whole group of seminarians do the same thing, eight or nine of us, and I was the only one from a theologically conservative seminary, but there were seminarians, they're all doing the same kind of training. And we had devotional time every week, and we, we rotated who got to lead the devotions. And uh, when it came my turn, I decided I would uh, use a text from the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy that says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. My point was simply to the group that although we are here as seminarians, although we are here having been called into ministry in some way, we need to be constantly aware that we are still people in need of the grace of Christ in our lives because we're still sinners. That was my point. So when I finished, I waited for the feedback of the group because we always had a time of feedback. And I was kind of expecting, you know, reasonably positive feedback. And that's not what I got. What I got was not only negative, it was angry. I mean, really angry. This one lady was almost, almost trembling with rage when she said, how dare you? She pointed her finger at me. How dare you insinuate that I'm a sinner? I've given my life to help other people. I was tempted to say, actually, I didn't insinuate. <laughs> I actually said, you're a sinner, and so am I. I didn't say it. I thought it was not the right time to do that. Uh, but that was the first time it dawned on me, having grown up in and around the church, in and around the gospel, 
how offensive and polarizing the word sin had become in our culture. One writer has said, the only sin today is to claim that there is such a thing as sin. You have to think about that a little bit. Here's what I notice. No one wants to be told they're a sinner. No one. But everyone sees sin in somebody else. Right? That's our culture today. Verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now right here in your journal, you should write a big question mark. Like, what? Wait? (coughs) Why does he say this? This strikes us as surprising that Jesus would say this to this guy. He's obviously suffering from a physical issue, a serious condition. So why does Jesus forgive his sin? Now, not only is this surprising, we have to also see this is a shocking moment in the whole story of the New Testament. In fact, this moment right here, chapter 2, only the second chapter of the Gospel of Mark, is why Jesus winds up on the cross some chapters later. We're going to see this more clearly in the next couple of weeks. This is not why the friends tore a hole in the roof of that house. It's not. It's not what the paralyzed man was hoping to hear from Jesus. It's not. This is the first thing Jesus says to him. So we have to ask the question, why? Well, I think two reasons. First, Jesus knows something about this man, something that he doesn't know, and something that his friends don't know. Secondly, Jesus is also claiming something about himself that no one in the crowd yet knows. So what does Jesus know about the paralyzed man? Jesus knows that this man's physical problem, his paralysis, as painful and as debilitating as it is, is not his greatest problem. Let that sink in just for a moment. The truth is, we live today in a culture that worships at the altar of physical health. We do. We are one of the first societies in the history of the world to both expect and demand a pain-free existence as our right as human beings. If I have a headache, I take Tylenol. I feel better. Right? If I have a toothache, I go see my dentist and he fixes it or she fixes it. If I have arthritic hips, I get them replaced and I can walk without pain again. It's our expectation. It's our right. Think for a moment about the content of most of the prayers that we pray here in worship or most of the prayers we hear prayed. Don't most of them have to do with physical pain, relief from illness, healing? Now, that's a good thing. Physical healing is a good thing. Health is a good thing. Praying for those things we're invited to in Scripture. But Jesus is saying to this paralyzed man and to us that that's not the most important thing. It's not his greatest problem. And I wonder sometimes if we really believe what Jesus is saying here. Pastor Joe Scavato and I were meeting uh, over the last couple of weeks preparing a sermon he's preaching at Kesslinger today. And he asked an interesting question as we were talking. He said, what do you think? If the story ended right here, with Jesus saying, son, your sins are forgiven, would the story be complete? Would we be satisfied with that story? Would that be enough? The truth is, in this story, Jesus is saying, if the story was only about the healing, then it wouldn't be complete. Let's consider a little bit different perspective. We hear a great deal in our culture today about social justice, which is a good thing. The Bible tells us that the God we worship and serve is perfectly just. 
He calls us as his people to be a people of justice and mercy. But while there is economic injustice in the world, that's not the greatest problem in the world. While there is racial injustice in the world, that's not the greatest problem in the world. While there are all kinds of isms in the world, racism, sexism, ageism, you name it, those isms are not the main problem with the world. They're just symptoms of the main problem in the world. The Bible teaches us, and Jesus is teaching here, right here in this story, that the greatest problem in the world, the greatest problem in each and every human being, is called sin. This is the first issue Jesus is getting at. And if we start with anything else other than the depth and the nature of our own sinfulness, we do not understand him or the gospel he came to proclaim. We don't understand. And the Bible teaches us we have two problems when it comes to sin. All, first is all have sinned. All have sinned. Even though we try to deny it, don't we? We try to blame it on something else. We try to blame it on society or blame it on our parents or blame it on how we were raised or blame it on our economic situation or blame it on something else. Or, or we try to compare ourselves to the other really bad people out there. We often say, well, at least I didn't kill anybody, right? We still know. We still know that we're sinful. We know it's there. That's our first problem. The second problem is we don't know what to do about it. We can't make it better ourselves. Jesus is addressing both of these problems because he's claiming something about himself. And that leads us to, thirdly, the problem of authority. The problem of authority. Uh, back to my story of being pulled over in Georgia for speeding. I said I learned a few things about authority. Well, here's what I learned. I learned that that Georgia State trooper had the authority to pull me over and to give me a ticket for speeding. I learned that that sheriff had the authority to detain me and to make me call my dad. And I learned that my dad had the authority and the resources to pay my debts. I learned all three of those things in one night. There may not be a greater and more contemporary issue in our world right now than this, the problem of authority. We see it all around us every day, I think. I would say it's the greatest issue of our current cultural moment. Who has the authority? Who has authority? And better yet, which authority can we trust as telling us the truth? Who has the authority to make us wear a mask? Who has the authority to make us get vaccinated? Who has the authority to fill in the blank, make us drive 55? Who has the authority? At least part of that issue has to do with truth. Who is the authority of truth? Our culture has moved over the last generation or two uh, from an understanding of authority coming from outside ourselves, authority coming from outside our culture, from God, for example, or government for another example, now we see authority as coming from inside ourselves. We see our own selves as a source of truth. We hear it all the time. Speak your truth. Be true to your truth. What's true for you doesn't have to be true for me. That's how our culture has changed. And that's the problem of authority. Mark 2, verse 6. And now some of the scribes were there, Questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Let me stop there. Are they wrong? Well, no uh, and yes. They're asking the right question, the question of authority. Who can forgive sins? It's a question of authority. And they give the right answer, God alone. But where they're wrong is they don't yet know who 
Jesus is. And that leads us to the fourth problem, the problem of Jesus. Verse 8, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, listen, which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. So I'm asking you today, which is easier? I'll wait. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So several things to notice here. First, Jesus knows what they're thinking. I'm not sure he needed divine insight to know that. I mean, these were scribes. He knew what they believed. And Jesus knew that they knew that the only one who has the authority to forgive sin is God alone. Jesus knew that. They knew that. Everybody's clear here. Then he refers to himself as the Son of Man. And this is where the story gets dicey. This was Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself in the Gospels. He does so over 70 times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Why? Well, the Son of Man was understood to be a messianic title of authority. It's it's found in the book of Daniel. Jesus is saying, by using this phrase, Son of Man, he's saying, not only do I have the authority to teach, not only do I have the authority to heal the sick, I have the authority of God to forgive sin on earth because I am the Son of Man, I am the Son of God, I am in myself. God. Now you're going to see here, Jesus is picking a fight. Second chapter, book of Mark, he's picking a fight. We're going to see this more clearly as the story unfolds, but Jesus knows exactly what he's saying, and he knows who he's saying it to, and he knows how they're going to respond. Then he demonstrates that authority that he's just claimed by telling the paralyzed man to get up and walk and carry his mat home. Now a couple important things here. It's important for us to know that Jesus did not heal everyone in the ancient world. He didn't heal everyone in the house that day. He didn't heal everyone in Capernaum. He didn't heal everyone in Israel. He didn't heal every sick person he came into contact with. He didn't. Because physical healing was not the point of his coming. And physical healing in this story is not the main point of the story. But Jesus does offer forgiveness of sin and salvation to everyone. And that's the good news of the gospel. That's the point of this story. I was a psychology major in college, but when I sensed God calling me into ministry, I figured I needed to go back to school, and I re-enrolled at Taylor University to pick up a degree in biblical studies. And one of my professors there was a man named Dr. Sig Zilke, who passed away a couple years ago. But on the first day of the class on theological foundations, all the students got there, were sitting in class. He didn't say a word. The first thing he did was write on the blackboard a sentence. He wrote, Jesus is not the answer. Now, you've got to remember... This is a class filled with Christian students, many of us on the way to a life of ministry. So it created kind of an awkward moment because this was the time when it was uh, common to see a bumper sticker that said Jesus is the answer. And he had just written on the board, Jesus is not the answer. And he stopped, didn't say a word. We were all looking at the blackboard like, did I get the wrong class? Or... And then he went back and he drew a line through that and then he wrote, Jesus is always the question. Jesus is always the question. 
And he went on to explain that until we know the question, we really can't know the answer. And in this story, and throughout the rest of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus presents us with questions. Who is your authority? What is your authority? And what do you put your ultimate faith and trust? What is the gospel? What is the good news of God? What's your greatest problem? And which is the greater miracle? Healing of a paralyzed man? Get up and walk. Or son, your sins are forgiven. Forever. Many of you know my dad came to stay with me this summer. He fell, broke his hip about a month ago. He struggled since. It's a hard time for him. And so I, we pray for him. I, I hope one day he can walk again on his own. I ask God for that. But the greater miracle happened in his life 73 years ago when three of his friends invited him to go to an evangelistic meeting in southern Illinois, and he met Jesus for the first time. That's the miracle I'm most grateful for. And that's the point of this story. We're going to close our service with communion today. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing a wonderful hymn. Allow the hymn to prepare your hearts for the table of the Lord, and then we'll share bread and cup together. So will you bow with me as I pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for this beautiful, dramatic story of a determined and desperate faith. These four nameless friends who with great determination, brought their friend to you because they trusted you. So we ask you to grow in us that kind of faith. And today we recognize your authority, not only to heal, but to forgive. Remind us today through bread and cup of the price you paid for our sin, for our debt, for my sin. And by your spirit, fill our hearts with gratitude, joy, and new life. It's in your name that we pray.